Hello, I'm Sam and I'm here with Kat. Hello. And welcome to Our Threatened Species. This is a podcast where we talk about the vulnerable wildlife in Britain with help from our expert guests. Wildlife is decreasing across the world and whilst we all want to protect the big charismatic species like lions and giraffes, it's easy to forget the animals and plants we have right on our doorstep. So this podcast aims to shine a light on the fantastic species that live right here in the UK because a wise man once told me that to save the world you must understand what's on it first. So follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Threatened Species to get in touch and to ask your questions. Hello, so it's our second ever podcast episode. It sure is. And today's topic is arable weeds. It is. And to be honest, before our interview about them, I really didn't know much about arable weeds at all or even why they're important. Same. I hadn't thought of them as a topic of concern at all before. It's certainly an area that could do with a bit more coverage. Yeah. My dad's the worst when it comes to weed killer in the garden. He's so trigger happy with a spray bottle. <laughs> But yeah, I definitely learned a lot today and have a newfound admiration for arable weeds. Me too. I hadn't even really thought of a poppy as a weed before today, which is bad, but I feel very educated and I'm going to have a weedy, rewilded garden before we know it. A perfect excuse to be lazy with gardening. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> anyway, today's guest is Dr. Andrew Lack. He's an author and a lecturer at Oxford Brookes University. He teaches animal biology and conservation. He was actually one of my lecturers whilst I was studying that course, so I thought he'd be a perfect guest to talk to us today. Take it away. Welcome, Dr. Andrew Lack. So, as we know, today's episode is about arable weeds. So, first things first, what is an arable weed? An arable weed is a plant that's growing in our cornfields or our rape fields or our beet fields or whatever else, or cabbage fields, um, arable land, i.e. Uh, not pasture land. Um, and... They used to be really quite a lot of them, quite a lot of different species. Um, the classic one is the poppy. I mean, that's the one that everybody knows is the poppy. And of course, it's also the plant that people um, can see from a mile off and tell what it is. It's about the only plant I think I could say that about, you know, um, because they can turn an entire fields red and, and certainly used to do that. They do it much, much more rarely now. But I still occasionally have seen one. But of course, it's only it's one among many. There are there are many other cornfield weeds, most of them somewhat less spectacular or striking than a poppy, but still very much a, a part of our arable background, as it were. They're they, you know, part of the background of, 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 of us. And I think is why they're so interesting. Yeah, I actually didn't realise that poppies were an arable weed until... I, no, I didn't know they were a weed. No, I didn't know they were classes. A weed before. Well, no, that's very interesting that you didn't. Is that because when you look at arable land, you don't see any weeds in it? I guess, yeah. I suppose Maybe, yeah. Because you know, a student sometimes, and, and I know, um, you know she felt self-conscious about it once it said, but when I said that people just don't walk in the countryside anymore because there's no point, um, she just sort of looked quizzically at me and thought this was very odd. And I said, well... You know, if you go into the countryside, what you see is a wheat field or a rape field with, well, wheat or rape and nothing else. Yeah. And so I said, so what's the point? You know, oh, she said, I don't think of that as countryside. Mm. And I thought, oh, and my jaw dropped. But I thought that was, you're actually saying something rather similar. Um, because, I mean, you may not use those words, but but that's what you're saying. I mean, and... Um, because it, this is a change in my lifetime too, because I'm in my sixties now, and and the you know sixty years ago, 
okay, well, I can't remember quite what happened 60 years ago, but 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 even in sort of 50 odd years ago, um, there were far more weeds and poppies were much commoner. I mean, you say you don't think of poppy as an arable weed. What do you think of poppy as? I guess I just think of it just as, as a, just a, a flower. flower. Yeah, one that you'd get in a garden centre or something. <laughs> well, you do get them. I mean, I, I know you, you'll see them in waste ground. You'll see them sort of at the edges of fields, or you might see them on the edges of garden or the edge of a car park or something like that. Um, anywhere where it's a bit disturbed, um, you do get poppies, and it's still common. Yeah, there's no question that a poppy is still common, but it's fundamentally it's an arable weed, and um, the it, it's it's a plant that is characteristic of wheat fields or barley fields, um, really, uh, particularly the grassy ones. Um, uh, I say wheat, 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 barley, oats, rye, I mean, but mainly, mainly wheat and barley are the two big ones. Um, and that's really where you see the poppies. Yeah. Um, and the reason I mention, I mean, poppies is such a fascinating one because um, for several reasons, the poppy is such an interesting plant. One, it's very, very common, still very common, but was much commoner. But of course, we're all familiar with poppies as a as a symbol of remembrance, and um, you know the war dead as well, aren't we? So I mean, come November, you know, we all we all wear our poppies in our lapels, um, and that's because huge numbers of poppies came up on uh, the First World War battlefields um, after all the disturbance because they like disturbed soil. They grow quickly, and they're also short lived. They grow fast. They flower and they set seed and they die all in the space of probably about four months. Um, it's a short time. I mean, if they over the winter, it's a bit. It, it can be a bit longer because obviously growth is slower. But if they germinate in the spring, it'll it'll be over very quickly. Um, and that's true of so many of the other arable weeds as well. But I mean, the other thing about the poppy and actually nearly all the other arable weeds is that there is no record of them and no pollen record or any other record of them in this country before about 7,000 years ago when agriculture first came here. So where were they before there was agriculture? Yeah, that's really interesting. So what's your hypothesis? Where do you think they were? I think the hypothesis, well, fundamentally, I think um, they've come up from the southeastern Mediterranean where, um, so from sort of, you know, Turkey, Syria, Israel, that area, um, uh, and perhaps Greece. And they've spread with it, because that's where agriculture started anyway, um, in what's now uh, Mesopotamia, you know, part, parts of Iraq, um, and then quickly spreading to other parts of that region. And the um, then spreading up more slowly through Europe. And it looks as if many of the weeds came up with them, with the agriculture. The poppy is particularly interesting because um, the poppy, even in that part of the world, only occurs in cornfields. Now, agriculture, we know, started somewhere between 10 and 12,000 years ago. Um, So it cannot be more than 12,000 years old, maximum. So what was it? And the the interesting thing is when you go down to that region of the Eastern Mediterranean, there are some closely related species of poppy to the corn poppy. Um, And it looks like it it actually arose with agriculture. So it's actually a species of agriculture actually first appearing as a species in agriculture, probably as a result of hybridization between two or possibly even more of the other species that, that, that occur 
down there, but but which are distinct in small ways. I mean, they are they are similar. Um, so I mean, that's a, an interesting one. It possibly even occurred that way. So I think a number of them came across. I, clearly, it's a very different environment down there, and and not all the weeds are going to make it across, across the uh, you know, the rest of Europe. And the other thing, of course, is that. Um, some of them may have been here all along in very disturbed places. And the most obviously disturbed place where they might have come from is sand dunes. It's not the only one, but that's, it's, it's the only one with any sort of extensive area. And it is quite likely that one or two of them, at least, were present on sand dunes in the, you know, where constantly getting blown sand and, and you know, where it's slightly more stable but you're still getting blown in sand. It's unst- unstable ground. And, and these are opportunist plants in many ways, re- relying more than anything on speed of growth. They just they just grow fast, flower fast, and die fast, you know, and just 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 let the seeds go. Because they've got to get they've got to get through before the plough comes back again. Um so uh you've got to, you know, quick life cycle. That's essential if you're going to be a cornfield weed, if you're going to be an arable weed. It's interesting so, that you say um that. You think they came as a result of agriculture because the reason that you probably see less of them now is also due to agriculture and how it's expanded so much. Not just how it's expanded, but, but I mean, it, it's it, as I say, it's agricultural change within my own lifetime is why we see so few of them. Um, one of my earliest um, botanical memories, really, is when I was aged um, nearly eight. Was I nearly nine? I can't remember, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I was asked for a, a, as a competition um, at school. We had to bring in as many plant species as we could. A very, um, very good good thing to do at the time. We had to just pick them and bring in because um, my teacher knew knew her flowers pretty well, um, and I didn't win. I should say, um, <laughs> but um, I did go out onto the fields near where when they were near where we lived at the time. And where I was brought up, and um, the cornfield there were full of the weeds, which have mostly disappeared, with evocative names. I mean, you know, the, the corn spurry and the um, pheasant's eye and the Venus's looking glass and the the corn buttercup, it's otherwise known as the devil's claws. You know, th- these are quite evocative names, and. Um, and actually, I don't think the pheasant side was in that field, but the others all were that I've just mentioned. And the small bugloss and the corn marigold, um, they were all there. They were all there in that field. And I've been to, back to that field many times since. And now there's none of those things, is there? Not a single one. Nor have I seen, for instance, a Venus looking glass um, in Oxfordshire probably since then. I don't think I've seen one in Oxfordshire for 50 years anywhere in Oxfordshire, let alone the farm just right next door to where I was brought up. So they've gone. It's 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 you know, there's a real conservation problem here, and it's a very interesting one because you know what's so so interesting about them is that these are the plants we've been trying to get rid of. These are the plants we don't like because they take away from the crop. Mm. You know, when you're planting a, a wheat crop or a barley crop, what you want is a wheat crop or a barley crop. You don't want the weeds, and um, and yet, and yet, they're pretty. And they're, I say they're evocative. They tell us something about what the land was like. And I say, and yes, I can lament it because I can remember when I was eight years old getting those, um, getting those plants for my teacher and remembering the richness of those fields and how it has all gone. Yeah. So 
we're talking about arable weeds in general. Which which of them are threatened? Well, oh no, several several of them are. I mean, yes, we've mentioned the corn poppy, which definitely isn't threatened. It's just an awful lot less abundant than it was, but it's still common. Um, the uh, one of the ones that I think is most threatened is the corn buttercup, mm. which is a small flowered buttercup. I said it used to be known as the devil's claw. That's one of its old folk names um, to do with the um, the fruits, which look rather unlike the buttercups that we're much more familiar, familiar with, the, the meadow buttercups, um, three of those which are still very common. Um, the corn buttercup, it does, it has this very, very clawed um, fruit um, after the flower. That one has disappeared from huge swathes of the country now. And it was quite quite a common plant um, in mainly in the south and east of the country. Um, but it was really quite a common plant. And that, I think, has probably done the steepest decline. And mainly because it was quite common. But <laughs> the, the thing is, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? I, when you see some of the old literature about these things, um, they often lament the presence of these plants because they take away from the crop in whatever way. But also, there's a familiarity, a familiarity with these plants. And people were expected to know them. I mean, I've, I've, some of the poets and things that we write about them, they write about some of these names, clearly expecting their audience to know what they're talking about. And of course, even though you are trying to get rid of something, doesn't mean you don't have an affection for it. And it doesn't, that doesn't mean it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean something to you. So, you know, I mean, the corn buttercup is perhaps the most, most obvious. I mean, there are several others. The corn cockle, which is one of the most striking and pretty of, of all the cornfield weeds, um, that one is it's quite a big plant. That, that's, you know, with, with a sort of purple purple flower, which is, well, I don't know, inch and a half across, um, something like that. And it's quite an ornamental thing, really, in many ways. Um, that one also declined hugely. Um, and... Because it's pretty, people have now replanted. It has actually been reintroduced quite successfully in quite a number of places, actually, and has spread again. Um, think about that one. Um, the, one of the problems is it's called a corn cockle because its seed is a small black thing which looks extremely like a miniature cockle shell. Um, tiny. I mean, it's only a millimetre or two across, but but, um, it, but it does look like a cockle. It's lovely, well-marked, but it's black. And if it gets into your, um, your wheat crop and you, know, you start trying to make your bread out of corn cockle seeds, Firstly, it turns the bread grey. Nobody likes grey bread. Um, uh, and secondly, it's mildly poisonous. <laughs> so nobody really wants that either in their bread either. Um, I mean, it's not going to kill you, but um, or at least not in, not in an extremely large quantity. But it's, it, you know, so you can see that people would, you know, not wanting corn cockles around. Um, so it's another one that's... Um, it declined almost to extinction. It's been suggested it even actually went to extinction, but has been relied on reintroduction since. So there's another one. The the Venus's Looking Glass I've already mentioned that also declined hugely. A lovely name. A little another little blue um, plant related to the bellflowers. I haven't I haven't seen one in a while for there of that for oh many years now anywhere in this country. But again, it, it it you know wasn't a rare plant. So there's another, and even another really really um, big one, the cornflower, the wonderful blue cornflower, which 
it's never been very common in this country, and and it still occurs again on the sort of wasted places where where you'll find poppies. But when you find a field full of cornflowers, turning it blue in the way that the poppies turn the field red, I have seen it uh, most recently about ten years ago in France. I have once seen it in Britain. I saw it on the edge of the Murray Firth. I remember it vividly when when, when I was probably no more than fourteen or fifteen, just seeing a, a field blue with cornflowers. It's a most magnificent colour. It's a wonderful colour. So why is it important that we preserve these plants? What's the benefit to the greater ecosystem? Well, I think this is where I think it gets a very... You're asking a very interesting question, which I don't think has at all an easy answer. It hasn't got at all an easy answer because fundamentally they don't do anything to the ecosystem. All they do is, they I say, they're very short-lived. Not all of them are short-lived. I mean, there are a few um, you know, things like cooch grass, which... Um, uh, you know, is, is rhizomatous and does also sometimes come up. But most of them are short-lived. I'm thinking of the sort of short-lived ones with pretty flowers, effectively. Um, uh, they really are fitter-inners. I mean, they're opportunist plants. All they need is a bit of open ground and little competition. They grow fast, yes. Um, so they're very much adapted to quick growth most of them, though the poppy there is an exception, most of them self-fertilize. They've got small flowers, smaller flowers than their relatives, uh, which aren't arable weeds. But th- this is these are all characteristics of plants which um, are non-competitive. But they don't need to be because we keep opening the ground for them, you know, with our with our plowing or whatever, or whichever way we deal with it. There is a whole sort of ecosystem there um, of arable weeds. But it's just as per arable weeds, really. Yes, they take away from the crop. Most of them seem to have come as ancient introductions with uh, with agriculture that appeared, say, back six, 7,000 years ago in Britain, at least. I think their conservation value, and it seems to me they have huge conservation value, is, is twofold, really. I think, firstly, and importantly, really, they're well known or were well known, and we've lost something. Lost something that was that was familiar, and when somebody tells me they don't think of it as countryside, you know, I, I feel I feel shocked because the countryside used to be worth walking in, and if it's just a, a sterile wheat field with absolutely nothing in it, then it's not worth walking in. I've seen wheat before, you know, um, and you know all you're seeing is that, and you can see it's got very few invertebrates in it as well, um, and it's and it's part of the intensification of agriculture, which 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 has gone on, which has undoubtedly increased yield, sometimes to the detriment of nutrients of the crop as well. Of course, that's a different matter, which I won't go into, but um, but it but it's certainly there. And the other thing, of course, is I mean these weeds are very much part of our culture, and they've come in to our culture in all sorts of ways. The Inventor of French Impressionism, Claude Monet. He'd be nothing if he didn't paint poppies. I mean, poppies are, you know, <laughs> he painted poppies so many times, he only sometimes called them poppies. Um, Les coquelicots, he, he used to call them. But but he painted poppies a lot more often than he actually said called them poppies because every time he ever painted any agricultural land, he painted a, a piece which was red. Well, I won't say every time, but certainly a lot of the times. Um, the part was red, there's a red field, and clearly that's poppies. I say because it's the one plant that you can... Uh, you can tell them a mile off. And okay, um, that's the most striking of them. But the, the other ones I've mentioned, the corn spurry, the corn um, marigold, the corn flower, the Venus's looking glass, all these others, um, you know, they're there in these fields. It seems to me of great value just in and of themselves. I mean, they're just intrinsic value of a of a plant that's been 
part of our lives and should be part of our lives. And I just think that the disappearance of those sorts of things is simply making life less interesting and making life less valuable. I was speaking to my farmer friend only yesterday, actually, because he did a session for the students. And he says one of the reasons he thinks that so many people are not going into farming is because it's too boring. Farmland is boring. At least much of it is boring. And it doesn't need to be. So we've got this real dilemma. I mean, these plants, which are part of our cultural background, we love them or some of us love them. They're very beautiful when you get close to them, but you have to get close to most of them because they're very small. There are at least many of them. And they've got such an interesting history because of coming across from the Eastern Mediterranean and possibly some of the others, although we don't, we don't know so much about them, but possibly some of the others even appearing with agriculture, children of agriculture in a way, like, like the poppy. It's just part of a part of the world. It's part, it's part of what, the, what makes the world an interesting place, part of what makes the country an interesting place to be. So I think that's their value. And I think it's a cultural value. And I think it's a personal value. And of course, some of them do provide the um, the seeds and the places for the invertebrates. I mean, the number of butterflies, and the number of birds are the ones that people notice. But of course, it's also true for almost all the other insects and such like as well. Again, corresponding with um, somebody who's been looking at the number of house martins. Now, there's a bird which people tend to like very much. It nests on houses. There's little mud nests on houses. And he was fundamentally looking at the old records for his area from, I think, the immediate post-war years or possibly even the pre-war years, where there was a colony of, I don't know, something like 500. And now he thinks it's down to about 20 or something. I, I mean, I've got the numbers wrong, but it doesn't matter. The point is that these birds have disappeared. Now, they're insect eaters. And the number of aerial insects on agricultural land has just gone down and down and down and down. The birds have gone and the insects have gone. The ones we notice, particularly the butterflies, um, because because we like them. They're pretty. So many of them have disappeared. So agricultural land has just become this this desert. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that when I think of countryside, I definitely just think of the very neat borders with the single crops in them. You don't really think much beyond that. You know, you think of the patchwork farmland, but you've uh, definitely made a great case for them. Um, and do you think enough is being done to protect them? I think people have become more aware of them. Enough is being done to protect some of them, I think, is the answer. Um, uh, I say the corn cockle and the corn flower are both strikingly attractive plants. So they're likely to get more interest than the little ones. Mm. Little ones, probably not yet. People are trying to redress some of this. I mean, they're putting, you know, um, conservation headlands is one of, uh, one of the thing, ways that people actually have... I've tried to do it. And so you, know, you leave at least a patch somewhere. It's okay, you have your intensive arable, but then you just leave a patch at the edge of your field. The trouble with the, some of them, at least, is that they then take in a seed mix of wild flowers, most of which aren't wild. I mean, they include things like, well, I mean, one that so often is included is a thing called phacelia, which is a Californian plant, for goodness sake. People like it's pretty. I'm not denying it's pretty. It's also very attractive to pollinating insects and, and um, you know, bees and such like. And, you know, and, and, and it, yes, it, it, it looks nice, but no way is that a wild plant. Um, and even some of the other ones that are, that are being um, introduced aren't wild either. So, you know, beware wild, wildflower meadows and wildflower conservation headlands. Um, they're not all wild. Um, and uh, they very often don't have these, these plants in them. You know, they were the ones that I'm trying to make the case for. Like the, I mean, the corn buttercup, corn buttercup could be a symbol of this because I say, I think it's the one that's declined most seriously of all. There are, I mean, conservation has become much more uh, prominent, rightly so. 
um, in recent years. But it's still quite restricted in, in, the, in, in, in how far it, it extends, and in particular, how far it extends into arable land. Yeah, um, I've been reading a bit about rewilding and I was wondering what people could do themselves, you know, on a smaller scale to encourage arable weeds into their own gardens. Uh, first, find your arable weed as a seed source. Um, and that can be pretty hard. Um, uh, I, you can, I mean, they will grow easily in disturbed soil. I mean, you only need to find the, the right seeds and they will, I mean, that's the whole that's their whole sort of way of life, isn't it? That's, that's what they do is grow easily um, and quickly. Um, would people find such things as corn buttercups, which I keep going on about, or corn spurries or small bugloss or things attractive enough to grow in a garden? I think probably it would only be a specialist who would actually find them, find they really want to grow those sorts of things in the garden because they're small and they're, they're quick, as it were. They, you know, they, they grow and they flower and they die all in all in fairly short order. So whether and the, and the flowers are small. I mean, I think they're very pretty, but but um, I, I can see that you know they're not hugely strikingly pretty. I say with the, with a few honourable exceptions, it's the small ones are they're more difficult to to persuade people to grow. But you know, there's there's an awareness. I think that it is genuine awareness of conservation and what we what we might do for conservation. Which is, which is growing. It is growing. You know, I think so much of these things, you know, we, we've wanted to get rid of these plants in particular for millennia. And um, we wanted to get rid of them. You know, be careful what you wish for because it might happen. You know, now we've, it's happened and they've almost gone. You know, people suddenly think, oh, I miss them. And rewilding is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. Um, it's becoming increasingly popular. Do you think this is something that could be used to um, see a resurgence of them? Well, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're talking about that at a very apt moment, actually, too, because what is going to happen now that we've left the European Union? And now that's, this is, and again, talking to my, um, uh, my farmer uh, chum um, about it, because an awful lot of the money that a farmer makes, uh, he makes um, through subsidy, subsidy from the EU. Um, so now we're not in the EU. Where's that going to come from? He only, um, my friend, only makes about thirty to forty percent of his income from what he actually sells. Now he's he's a sheep farmer, um, so he's not an arable farmer. Although he, he does do the odd bit of arable sometimes, um, but. Um, but it's the same. He says it's the same across the board. He says it's not. It's not. Um, he's no different from any other farmer, um, whether arable or not. Um, and so far, the government has said they're going to gradually phase out the subsidy. Now, you'll see where I'm coming from here, because if you phase out the subsidy, what do you do? Because no farmer can stay in business without subsidy. Our food is ludicrously cheap stupidly, ridiculously cheap. It is far, far cheaper than it ever was when I was growing up. Um, less than half the price it was. I, I mean, I'm talking obviously compared with income. And this is all to do with subsidy. Um, it's to do with intensification as well, to some extent, but it's also particularly to do with subsidy. We are used to paying very little for our food. We will have to get probably to get used to paying quite a lot more for it. Um, that probably won't do us any harm. Um, the fact is that rewilding then becomes a much more obvious prospect because, as I say, my friend pointed out that, that most people will not be able to afford to carry on farming. So if they can't afford to carry on farming, what is going to happen to all the farmland? 
Now, I mean, I think, you know, the government is phasing it out slowly, probably because they're wanting to decide, to decide actually how to deal with this, because they've got to deal with it somehow. We've got to deal with it somehow. The trouble is, I mean, we, we may not wish to start here, but unfortunately, we don't have any choice. We've got to start from where we've got to rather than uh, where we would like to be. You know, there's, there's the famous rewilding estate down in Sussex at Nepp, um, which, uh, which Isabella Tree has written, has written rather eloquently about. But, you know, that was a pioneering one, um, started 20-odd years ago. And, yes, it's become an ecological haven, and they're making a lot of money from, effectively, tourists coming along to see them. And they charge a perfectly reasonable amount to, to, to go and have a tour of the estate. And I, I suspect and hope, actually, that they're making a lot of money that way because they deserve to, because it sounds absolutely wonderful. I'm hoping to go there this year, in fact. Um, you know, but that's just one place. And what will happen when you know, the rest of the country decides to rewild? I don't know. I mean, of course it won't. Um, but I think there's a place for quite a lot more rewilding. But I think there is definitely room for some should we say more environmentally friendly farming? I mean, I, you know, my friend's an organic farm and organic farming is certainly much more environmentally friendly. His problem is that, you know, all around him, he's got intensive farms and his farm isn't big enough. What he, I think would be really good is if he, if he could persuade, say, half a dozen farmers immediately around his ground also to be organic, then I think that they would really have a big enough. They could actually, you know, hold a population of, um, some of these birds and some of the some of the butterflies and things which everybody wants, and as well as the as well as the weeds. But I think his farm is simply one farm. It, it needs to be sizable enough. And I think even the Nepp estate, I've read very recently that there's been the thought of um, increasing housing up to the edge of the Nepp estate, which isn't there now. You'd seen that too, would you? I've seen that. Yeah. And I can understand the um, you know the, the proprietors being very worried about this. Um, and seeing potentially their their lovely rewilded estate being diminished not by their own estate but by what's happening around them because it's just not big enough to provide enough of an oasis um, for some of the things that'll be there. I mean, some things will stay. It's probably big enough for some, but other things it just it needs the surrounding land to be to be at least at least somewhat sympathetic. So we're talking about some big projects, but. On a more individual level, is there anything we can do to help? It's difficult to know, really. I'm, I throw a few seeds around, <laughs> it's, it's, um, uh, and you know, treasure the treasure the weeds that come up if 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 they do. Um, I mean, it's it's somewhat artificial, I suppose. I mean, fundamentally, I mean, arable land is going to remain arable land at least in the immediate for, for most people, um, and. You know, and and farmers want to love their land. I mean, most farmers, particularly the farmer owners and the tenants, perhaps have a little bit less stake in it. Or well, many of them love their land too. You know, people want a nice farm. People like nice farms, and you know, there are you know, advisory groups and things going around to try and suggest that these things have a place. When we're not directly associated with farming, I think it's it's not so clear what really what we can do. Enjoy them when we find them. But I, I know it's, it's it's hard to know. I mean, other than just sort of trying to shout about it and, and uh, you know trying to say, well, actually, these things do genuinely have a value, and they have a value to us. Do you think there should be more legislation then surrounding their protection? No, because I don't think that would work. No. Um, but I think 
There could be, I mean, we're into, food is always subsidized. Food has been subsidized ever since food was, you know, ever, ever since, almost ever since agriculture first developed, actually. You know, in almost all societies, food has had certain subsidies associated with it. So it's not, it's, it's not a new thing to get subsidies. I think what we need is to have a subsidy, have subsidy system where we're with environmentally you know, where, where you've got the environmentally sound um, so that the subsidy is not just for food production. It's been totally related to food production. The dig for victory idea that came at the end of the Second World War. Now, Second World War, started, it stopped a long time ago. You know, I'm, you know, we've moved on since then. And, and um, subsidy for something which is much more environmentally sensitive farming would be extremely good idea, I think. I, of course, I still want the country to produce food. I want it to produce, you know, arable crops, um, animals, you know, and and whatever else, you know. Of course, they should be there. Our countryside would change hugely if they weren't. But I think we can, yeah, we can lobby for it, I think, it's, you know, to be done in a more sensitive way. I mean, there have been various schemes, but I think possibly one of the advantages of leaving the European Union is that we can have a little bit more say in this as to what we actually do and, you know, if we blow this opportunity, then it would really be a very, very sad thing if we blow the opportunity to do it, because we've got the opportunity now. And I think, I think we'll find some sympathetic ears um, in, in, in Parliament, in local um, councils and things. There are people there who, who want these sorts of things too. And we've got to make sure that that voice is loud. And it's, and it's up to us, like always, with anything political, um, it's actually up to us. It's you and me making our voices heard, trying trying to be sensible and you know involved citizens. Politicians only do what their sort of constituents want. That's really brilliant. Thank you so much, Andrew. Um, just lastly, how can people find you if they want to get in touch? Stuck up in my attic room, uh, <laughs> self-isolating. Um, you mean that sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. I was thinking uh, more over an email address or something. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still at Brooks. Um, so um, it's AJ Lack at Brooks, A-J-L-A-C-K at, at, at brooks.ac.uk is, 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 a, is a, an email address. Mm-hmm. Um I'm I'm on the Oxford Brooks websites anyway, so so it's uh, and that that's the easiest way to find me. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today, Andrew. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really lovely. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. I really enjoyed that conversation. Me too. I've just realised that we didn't actually do our quiz that we did last week on the last podcast. That's true, but to be honest, it will be a pretty tricky quiz. No, it'll be easy. You just need one question. Ready? What's a corn buttercup? Yeah, I mean, that would only be an easy question after the interview. I would have guessed flour. Okay. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Our Threatened Species and keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. Yeah. Bye. Bye.